Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the last episode of the Credit Crunch podcast, part of the FICC umbrella. This is Mahesh Bemalingam, Chief European Credit Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Bloomberg Intelligence is the research arm of Bloomberg LLP, and it is probably the largest research franchise on the street. So this episode is likely to be the last European uh, podcast on Credit Crunch. Our American friends will probably do one more uh, towards the middle of this month. And... Before we get on to the podcast, as always, I would like to remind you all to about our dashboard, B-I-S-T-R-T-E, the magic word. If you are a terminal user, please type in B-I-S-T-R-T-E uh, to access our dashboard, which has got all our proprietary data not available even anywhere else on the terminal, as well as all our research. This closing podcast of the year naturally has to be a 2024 outlook. But in addition, we've got a private credit focus as well, given that, you know, next year private credit is also going to see a pretty rapid growth as it has already seen in 2023. So today we have a very special guest, uh, an expert in that field. We got Fabian Kroberg, founding partner and chief investment officer at Northwall Capital Limited. Welcome, Fabian. Good morning, Mayesh. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Congratulations on the new... uh... Publishing your 2024 outlook. Oh, thank you. That's an every annual routine, though. <laughs> it's <laughs> nothing special. So, uh, so Fabian, tell tell us a little bit about Northwall and how you got involved in private credit. Uh, sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and and good to speak to you. Um, Northwall is a provider of private credit capital solutions to borrowers in the European middle market. Uh, we set up the firm in 2017. Um, to provide solutions to borrowers that have lost access to traditional sources of funding. Uh, For sure, that means uh, bank uh, lending, but traditional sources of funding now also uh, includes many parts uh, of the the private private credit market. Now, everybody uses this term private credit quite loosely, including myself. So what is private credit? What, What is the specialty of your private credit solutions? Please demystify for our listeners. I mean, let's start from the basics. Start from the basics. So generally speaking, on a high level, private credit really refers to uh, credit that is not issued by traditional um, banks um, and that is not traded uh, on secondary uh, secondary markets or, or, or liquid bond markets for that matter. Um, over time, private credit um, has evolved uh, to become more of a mainstream product. Um, obviously, a big part of private credit today um, is direct lending, uh, especially that serving um, sponsor-backed uh, situations. But within private credit, uh, there are many other subcategories. Um, you know, the subcategory that we tend to fall into, uh, broadly speaking, is opportunistic private credit, um, which to us really means a private credit solution um, that uh, tries to solve a funding gap um, created by uh, an element of inflexibility in other areas of private credit. That area of inflexibility, uh, you know, very frequently is the result of um, a need to get something done uh, very quickly, 
um, a failed process, um, some stress, or potentially even some distrust. And Northwell has established itself now in Europe to be one of the market leaders um, in providing these, these types of capital, capital solutions uh, to borrowers in Western Europe. What's in it for the investor? What's in it for you guys? What's in it for us? Well, for us, what's in it for us is also what's in it for our investors, which are, you know, a, a range of global uh, institutional LPs. Um, what's in it for them is the ability to access uh, potentially excess returns, uh, actually strong risk adjusted returns uh, from first lien, some second lien, senior secured credit. Um, you know, our return target tends to be uh, mid-teens um, and above uh, with relatively limited correlation to what's going on in wider credit markets. Um, so one of the key attributes of what we do because of the privately negotiated nature of our transactions uh, is to be able to create these very interesting um, strong downside protected packages. Is it because private credit doesn't trade that it has very little correlation? Um, because it's largely buy and hold, isn't it? It is certainly, you know, let's call it 80% of our positions are buy and hold positions. Um, and yes, there is uh, less mark to market because, you know, we, you know, we, we, we do not trade it. Uh, but that being said, you know, by the nature of our relationships with our borrowers and our counterparties, we are able to ask for things that are not available in much more competitive liquid market transactions, covenants being a good one. So we do not do covenant light transactions. And that already serves to remove volatility and outside protection. The second aspect is that we have a team of in-house restructuring ex experts when things don't work out like we expect them to, which inevitably will happen in anybody's portfolio. You know, we have the ability and the, the experience to see those through. So, you know, there is both, we are not subject to that perceived volatility for sure, but loss given default for our, our position should be, should be superior. Right. That's because it's a privately constructed transaction, uh, very bespoke. It is a privately constructed transaction that is very bespoke with, you know, strong security packages, strong downside protection, covenants, you know, potential, you know, if not board representation, then at least monitoring rights, um, you know, you know, and, and, you know, a generally a much more personal relationship um, with the borrower. Now, if that is the case, and I also hear that there is a significant premium that the borrower pays to the private lender for uh, a private credit transaction. What is the typical premium over a public transaction? Is it like 100 basis points, 150 basis points? Well, I think I think um, going you're not just going from private to public, right? But you're also going from smaller to larger, from complex to simpler, meaning the premium is not purely in nature of the of the liquidity differential. The premium is also in nature of the type of counterparty we're dealing with, the pressures they're experiencing, et cetera. So that the way that we think about it, we call it the North Wall complexity premium. And we think the North Wall complexity premium nowadays is probably somewhere between 500 and 700 basis points, depending on the nature of the transaction, of course. Um, and before the onset of this credit crunch, it probably would have been two to 300 basis points of incremental spread to a comparable, you know, call it leveraged loans tradable in the secondary markets. But if that is the case, that it is very specific to an issuer in a, comp in a complicated situation, how come we are seeing so much increase 
in in private credit volumes it doesn't seem like it is only for complicated credits it seems to be for and that is and that is of course absolutely right so we, we got to also here distinguish between you know what does northwall do which is we look to seek out idiosyncratic opportunities you know with a very specific subset of counterparties which by the way involve private equity sponsors that are fundless and could be as large as you know we recently closed a deal with the sponsor managers 50 60 70 billion euros of capital and actually even more there's always these very special situations that they can find themselves in with individual companies now i think the the, the key reason why you know you might have also improved returns you know in the larger more liquid private credit pool is simply because base rates went from zero to you know 400 500 basis points right and you're getting that incremental spread but also because of the nature of those transactions and the you know the desire for them to to attract more capital from this direct lending market you know they are willing to pay slightly larger spreads pay slightly larger fees um you know and generally are in a position where they need to pay just a little bit more what's in a, in a generic company not a complicated company yeah. where it would require northwall to step in but in a generic company what's in it for the issuer to pay more to do more you know maintenance covenants to regularly report to you to have more security and pay on top of it what's what's in it for them to do private credit instead of a syndicated loan or even better a bond it all comes down to transaction certainty right? Uh, right these counterparties are extremely sophisticated counterparties these you know the sophistication you know will lead to them not doing anybody any favorites and this is actually one of the reasons why northwall chose not to get involved in the more traditional direct lending markets because of the sophisticated nature of the counterparties using intermediaries to find the most flexible sources cheapest sources of capital available um so i don't think it is i think the the, the kind of idea that these counterparties are doing anybody any favors is of course is of course wrong right they are taking the money on the terms that they want to get from the most kind of flexible fastest lowest cost of capital lender which is why we as northwall hide you know while that is going on while there's an excess of amount of capital available in the slightly more complex situations where we can generate better risk adjusted returns at least in our in our opinion is you know with all these capital allocations from let's say your institutional investors into private credit and so on is it seeing is it leading to an increase in deal volumes and total amount of private credit lending in the market i think i think that's a really interesting question right and so you know you know we are certainly not you know one of the large uh, you know one of the large direct lenders out there and we are talking to our lps and we are noticing more and more this lp desire you know to go you know and provide capital to direct lenders uh, that have these very very large funds of course and are offering them at actually very very low fees and so there's this perception now that this direct lending opportunity said uh, this private credit opportunity said is incredibly interesting right um the flip side of that is that when you raise a multi billion you know tens of billion fund even to pursue an opportunity and when all the capital goes into these larger transactions inevitably there will be more capital chasing larger deals than smaller deals right hmm. and uh, the flip side of that our excess returns talking broadly as the, the the private credit industry 
um, you know, is somebody else's excess cost. Correct. And that makes uh, the makes the hurdle again using sponsor back transaction as an easy example. You know, this is obviously goes beyond sponsor back deals. It makes those transactions much more difficult transactions to execute. That reduces deal volume, right? And so one thing that I am a little bit nervous about is again this excess capital going into uh, the sponsor back private lending play or into the larger players. You know, we see it. You know, when we do a deal that is call it seventy five million, um, you know, in, in, in total size. Um, you know, we see a lot less competition than we go on something that is 100 million plus for sure. Now, well, for the purpose of our listeners, shed some more light on, let's say, in all transactions till 2023, just approximately, what percentage is sponsor-led and what percentage is just pure corporate? Approx. You're talking for us? Or no, for, for, the, for the market. I don't know. For you? For us, we, uh, for the first time, uh, in my career, and I talk about the last, I've been an investor now for almost 20 years. Um, I have been busier in sponsor-backed transactions than in unsponsored ones. Hmm. We are seeing more and more and more sponsors who have tried to tap direct lending markets, have tried to tap banking markets, and have come to us and said, look, you know, what we are experiencing here is a reduction in our traditional capital providers, not just appetite, but also ability to extend credit. So it could be as simple. We have one situation involving a big sponsor this year where the banking syndicate went from four times net debt to EBITDA to two and a half times, not because of performance of the business, because some just decided not to roll, not Correct. to get involved. Yep. Yep. So Because of capital uh, capital costs, et cetera, on, the, heard, on the banking side. Absolutely, Mahesh. Yeah. And I've heard every reason, you know, we are concerned about stability in Europe. We have no interest in UK industrials exposure. You know, and that is, so this can be industry, uh, macro reasons, it can be whatever. They but, own capital. Uh, they own, but at the end of the day, you know, you might take a view that the business are worth nine times, but maybe you think it's worth seven times. At North, as Northwall, we are extremely happy to come and fit, fix that funding gap from two and a half times to four times, you know, and, and maybe maybe a little bit, but not a lot beyond that. Hmm. So there's a misconception again that just because you know, uh, private credit is, has to come in, opportunity credit has to come in to fill the gap that we're taking excess risk. Nine out of 10 times, we just have to take decisions faster and more decisively than our counterparties are able to, to do it with somebody else. Right. Now, that brings us to a typical, uh, you know, private lending deal. How does it look? So I, I'm going to just ask you about, you know, what is the typical tenor of private lending? Um, and like it, yours and market, I think. I think generally speaking, you know, we are long term, long term capital partners. So you know, rendering private credit, you know, tenors can range from call five to seven, seven years. Okay. Uh, you know, so typical institutional loan. To, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, when we do a second lien, um, you know, and I would say that at Northwall, um, about twenty five percent of what we do will be in a second lien position. Um, you know, it will be six months mature, ten mature six months later than the first lien. Beyond that, it's 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 probably the same. Um, the cost of capital can be higher, um, depending on the on the on the nature of the situation, of course. And do you believe that 400, 500 basis point premium changes based on in on the tenor of the loan, or it doesn't matter? No, it does. It does not necessarily change on the basis of the tenor tenor right. of the loan. 
नेक्स्ट क्वेश्चन वुड बी डू सम सेक्टर्स और सम जोग्राफीज सिग्निफिकेंटली चेंज योर प्राइवेट क्रेडिट प्रीमियम वॉल there's risk that you can price assuming similar company and there's risk that you can price so we as northwell for example do not invest in eastern europe right, right. even before um you know uh, uh, russia invaded the ukraine you know obviously those countries off limits but also kind of peripheral eastern european countries we tend not to need to go into so that's risk we can price now you know we've done a deal in germany that we thought was very safe you know the premium was certainly lower there than in a comparable transaction in the uk where you have sterling risk where you have some some macro risk some 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 hangover uh, from brexit that yeah. risk <laughs> the black sheep in europe the black sheep in europe indeed yes yeah. but great for opportunity correct yeah correct there is a lot more upside i can tell you that it's the same everywhere else by the way in public credit bonds even equity right so um so, so it, a lot has been said in in private credit market taking share from liquid credit do you think that will continue in 2024 absolutely absolutely i think it will continue in 2024 i think the trend of accessing private credit um as a reliable source of capital um has now kicked off and it i think it's going to be very difficult to put that genie back in the box and you can see all the large investment banks you know are now trying to find solutions in how to tap into the private credit capital base using their existing cost base as originators and structures of risk do private credit lenders need to do something more funky next year as the public lending markets recover i mean we'll talk about it in the second half of the podcast uh but do you think you guys need to evolve and do something more funky rather than just plain vanilla direct lending no i wouldn't say that uh but i what i think will happen inevitably um amongst investors in this asset class they are now focusing first it's very much a buys on the us they will come to try and get incremental returns by coming to europe once the us risk premium has been arbitraged away so to speak which the us is much better at doing um you know much better cleaning up problems and moving on the next steps will be europe and i think um for my experience over the last 20 years of having been involved in this market what we will see is first the the bigger funds then the smaller funds then we'll see specialty finance opportunity credit you know and then potentially distressed although very importantly especially in europe it's the north wall view that it's better to view the distressed markets in europe as a market opportunity not an asset class so to try and time and allocate to a pure play european distressed uh, fund to hit the right time in the market is going to be very difficult however a firm like north wall if there is a tremendous opportunity in distress will of course you know participate uh, both on the secondary uh, but also with with some rescue would you things. would you call yourself a direct lender private lender or a distress lender specialist neither um northwall is a credit opportunities fund what we do is we make tactical allocations to the areas of greatest dislocation where we can generate the best risk adjusted returns for our investors at the moment you can do mid to high teens capital solutions with you know european sponsor backed businesses that's what we're going to do um if there is a material sell off in the secondary markets and we can generate better risk adjusted returns it's important not just better absolute returns but better risk adjusted returns for moving into some of these capital structures our fund you know could have an allocation to 
say 25 to 50 percent uh, of the stress, but our roots and our expertise and what we spend most of our time doing is in this providing provision of private capital solution to Western European middle market borrowers. Right. So, so, so going into 2024, you do see more private credit volume, more share into direct lending, but you don't see yourself specializing into distress lending. Absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I agree with you. There will be more private credit, more opportunities, and of course, you know, we as Northwell are, you know, watching these these very interesting, um, you know, very interesting evolutions, um, you know, in 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 the senior lending markets. There's some interesting returns to be had, and you know, we are of course also contemplating what products can we offer to our counterparties and our investors uh, to be able to maybe. You know, move down the risk curve a little bit and generate a good a, a good teens return, low teens potentially, uh, um, high double di- low double digits um, from you know senior senior lending unit tranche type lending, and so so that is uh, you know that is uh, you know something I've been working on. It's it's uh, a project that 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 we'll hope to launch sometime next year. Anyways, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to to share my views. Um, I think um, uh, it would be a shame for, for, for us here not to uh, learn a little bit more about uh, w- what's your view, um, uh, Maish, about the public markets uh, for next year. You've just published your 2024 um, outlook, which, uh, you know, is, um, you know, is, is, is extremely insightful. Um, maybe the best way to start is uh, that we think a little bit, talk a little bit about your views on the yield curve uh, for U.S. and Europe. Right. So uh, for the benefit of our listeners, so we published you know, separate outlooks for investment grade, high yield, leverage loans, and a combined credit outlook is coming out tomorrow. So that completes our full suite. Uh, we'll be publishing uh, green bond outlook and sterling outlook in the on the other side of uh, the new year. So, you know, if, before you take any credit view for, especially for an year, you need to have the underlying rates view nailed. And I think... In 2024, the uncertainty, in my view, is actually a lot less than, let's say, when we did, you know, 2020. I mean, obviously, we didn't predict uh, COVID-19 will happen. But let's say in 2020 or 21 or even 22, for that matter, uh, I think there is a lot more clarity on what sort of outlook we see for 2024 rates. Why? I think you're going to see uh, growth rates slow down you're going to see inflation really drop from where it is. Will you see a potential recession? I think uh, I'm in the camp that you're going to skirt a recession in uh, in the US. Uh, even here, I think we've already been through a technical recession in Europe. Uh, so we'll skirt a recession. We're going to get low growth rates, inflation dropping. And that means you're going to have real yields drop. Big real yield drop in the US a little bit of any real yield drop in in the US in in Europe now that would mean the yield curve will rally and that would also force the central banks to cut now the extent of which we can debate later on so what that would lead to a significant bull steepening in the yield curve lot more bull steepening in the US treasury curve a bit less in Europe but you can't escape the fact that there is a significant amount of bull steepening coming led by central bank rate cuts. The market is pricing in 100 plus for the Fed. The market is pricing in 125 plus for the ECB. 
the BOE is a separate story, but even the BOE is expected to start cutting from August. Now, in, the, in such a scenario, I'm very, very confident that a bull steepening is happening. And that has implications for credit. And what are your views about uh, cuts in, in the UK? Do you agree with the cuts coming from August? I think I think with inflation really dropping and getting into the you know the three and a half-ish territory, I think the central bank will have room to cut. The growth will be dropping, but that's not BOE's mandate, by the way. The BOE's mandate is purely inflation only. And as a result, once we get to like this three and a half, three-ish territory, uh, they will be able to. But I think the BOE will lag. The BOE will lag both the Fed and the ECB. That brings us to the question, if that is the central bank view and uh, the yield curve view, what does that mean for credit? Now, forget credit returns for the time being. What does it mean for spreads? When you have pretty fast yield moves, you will have positive correlation between spreads and rates. Now, you can give, we, we know it has happened at least five, six times in the last seven, eight, seven, eight uh, years, so last decade. In 2013, taper tantrum, when Ben Bernanke said that they will need to do something uh, on the yield curve, uh, taper tantrum happened and then spreads blew. Nothing was wrong in the credit markets, by the way. Yields blew, fixed income outflow, spreads positively correlated. Obviously, the negative move. Correlation was positive. Though. Then you got during the QE period, ECB QE, 2015-2016. there was no credit QE only uh, government bond QE and then spreads rallied in uh, sync with rates before credit QE started and then right. back in and then back in 2020 COVID happened fine obviously everything blew up but after that pandemic QE rates went down obviously credit also recovered from on a credit basis but also had positive correlation with uh, with rates 2022 significant inflation yields blow up Credit blow, there wasn't anything wrong in credit, by the way. Matrix were perfectly fine. In fact, there were a lot more upgrades than downgrades, but spread still blew up. Why? Because positive correlation, right? Fixed right. income outflows. Right. So I believe that story will play in a positive fashion in 2024. So what does it mean then for 2020? Optimistic on credit or? Oh, very. Yeah. So we, so despite spreads being rich, thanks to the recent rally, yeah. Uh, both investment grade and high yield are rich, more than one standard deviation. I think high yield is just less than one standard deviation rich. Investment grade is more than one standard deviation rich. Despite that, we believe spreads will tighten mm -hmm. because of the dynamic I've mentioned. Credit metrics on their own are fine. I mean, we can discuss in detail later on. That should lead to investment grade 5 plus, junk 8 plus, leverage loan 9 plus total returns next year. Wow. Okay. So public markets are going to do well. Public markets. Are, so I guess maybe uh, people shouldn't be allocating too much to private credit. Because like. next year, we I probably will be the year of the bond. I hope that none of my investors are listening to you. Um, but what are the? Uh, what do you think then? Uh, how will that impact? I guess asset allocation flows to evolve in rates, equity, or credit next year. Very good question. So, you know, let, let's map what happened in twenty two twenty three. In twenty two twenty three, what happened is significant inflation fear slash inflation led to yield blow up that has led to multiples in equity coming down credit on its own the matrix were okay but spreads blew up so we got 
one of the most disastrous years in 2022 a great recovery in 2023 2023 quite fabulous by the way returns wise junk 10 investment grade 6 this is euro denominated yeah, by yeah, the way yeah? yeah leverage loan 12 yeah so 2023 has been fab going into 2024 if people are in my camp if they if they believe that you know inflation is going to drop yields are going to come down i think fixed income is going to get pretty hefty flows uh, equities it is a multiple play but not an eps play so my right. view my view is that next year you're not going to see rampant flows into equity mm -hmm. yes equities do have upset because of multiple increasing but not because of eps growth yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly, so, certainly risk to EPS. So, so, so compared to usual years, I would expect more fixed income inflows and hence more credit inflows. Interesting, interesting. For credit to to you know to to, to be an investor, but asset class, of course, you need you need refinancings happening. So, what do you see in terms of um, refi needs? Um, you know, gross net supply. Uh, you know, for what, what do you see twenty twenty three shaking out? What are the expectations for for twenty twenty four? And that's quite relevant for you guys as well. well. Very important right? to us. Right? So, of course, yes. so here is what we see in terms of refinancing requirement, like the maturity walls, right? Yeah. So, in investment grade two thousand twenty four, the maturity wall is about three hundred twenty billion. Right? Index index eligible maturities. Okay. Now, obviously, are we and I think for a generic PM listening to this uh, podcast, they're generally not interested in non-index. Too of small, course, yeah, right? Understood, too understood. small. So index which creates the opportunity. Which creates us. the opportunity for you Absolutely. guys. Absolutely. So index eligible investment grade maturity wall three hundred twenty billion. Index eligible junk maturity wall sixty billion. Now guess what? Last year, full year in junk. We printed about only like 57-ish and it ended up being a negative net supply year, minus yeah. 37. So it is one of the worst, I think it is the worst year on record, 2023, despite rally, by the way. We are, we've rallied in spreads, we've rallied in yields, yet negative net supply. Yeah, but still a much higher cost of capital than before. Is that what is driving? That is correct. Right? You so you are the... trying to push it out, push it out. Until yeah, rates you, you hit the nail. Correct. Yeah. So basically the the gap, the, the refinancing premium, how do you measure it? So for a PM, the best way to measure it is how much does your existing debt cost and how much does new debt cost? Right. So a proxy would be the yield to worst minus coupon, par weighted coupon. And that gap, that gap blew up beyond 4% yeah. in high yield, 4.2 or something. And now it has come down to about uh, 1.7 or so, right? 1.7 in investment grade, I think. Right, so it's narrowing. And yeah, yeah. 1.7 in investment grade and about 2.3, 2.4 in high yield. Significant drops though. Investment grade used to be about 2.8, 2.9. That has come to 1.7. High yield used to be 4.2. So with that gap coming down, I expect a lot more supply next year. Also, financial conditions will be a lot easier. Also, front-end rates are coming down. Absolutely. So, uh, all in all, I expect, you know, about 80 billion junk gross supply. I expect about 550 billion investment-grade eligible gross supply. And that should lead to pretty hefty net supplies compared to this year. So junk net supply, I expect it to be, you know, something like 20 billion-ish. Remember, this year, minus 38. From minus 38 to plus 20 is a huge swing. 
Good swing, and then there's got to be enough capital coming in, of course, to to uh, to help to help solve that correct. new demand. So supply rather, yeah. correct. So in 2023, we did see positive fund flows in high, in investment grade. Yeah, high yield was a bit iffy. Depending on market conditions, it was up and down and up. Yeah. So, but next year, if my view plays out that you know it is going to be dropping inflation, dropping real yields. Slower growth, but not recession, and a significant yield curve rally. You're going to get a huge amount of flows. That is, uh, that's very interesting. Just to kind of bring it back to 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 how we see this, we had at least one instance this year where Initia thought that they were going to be able to refinance a capital stack in the uh, in the high yield markets. When that did not materialize, they had to go back to their banking syndicate and they had to call us for for the missing piece. So there are, you know, there are these opportunities if your predictions are right, delayed by a quarter or two relative to the expectation of individual issuers, because all yeah. we need is a handful of them per year yeah. to get that timing wrong. That creates really interesting opportunity for us. But, um, you know, it's certainly encouraging that, that so much new supply is coming the, the, out and it will be will be positive, I think, uh, investment climate for everybody in credit. The costs are, are one of the big reasons for this minus 38 billion, right? So high yield at one time was costing eight and a half percent. Now it costs 7.2% raw, of obviously, course. right? So as that comes down, with that significant boom rally, particularly front-ended, and a little bit of spread rally, we are talking that 7.2 can easily go down to like a 6. Right, right, right. right. And then uh, it's a game changer. But it will never be as cheap as it as it was for the last oh, 10 or no 15 years. Right? No, no chance. Uh, that... Which is why credit is here to stay. Yes, right? yes. So it is, it is that old pre-2020 lifestyle is not happening. We know that. Right now, we touched a little bit about, um, you know, earnings and credit fundamentals. Um, you know, anything, any other views uh, on that topic for 2023, kind of the wrap? And what about 2024? How do we think about that? So in terms of uh, credit quality, two ways. One is how is your credit matrix looking? Obviously, that's backward looking. How is it looking forward? Who is the best judge? In the markets, I think the best judge of the rating agencies, know how much you trust them is a different story. So if you look at those two stories, in terms of metrics, uh, despite some earnings weakness, marginal earnings weakness in uh, Q2, Q3 earnings cycle, they've held up. Uh, if you look at leverage, leverage, you know, crapped up by one decimal point in investment grade, another one decimal point in junk. So they've held up quite well, actually. If you look at uh, ratings, investment grade ratings are still around approximately 1.7 to 2 times upgrades to downgrades. So if you look at credit quality, credit quality in investment grade is still improving. In junk, it improved for two quarters, Q2, Q3. And now that is reversed to a drop in quality means more downgrades than upgrades. But Another way of looking at credit quality is how many fallen angels versus rising stars. Fallen angel being stuff getting downgraded from investment grade to junk. Rising star being stuff getting upgraded from junk to uh, investment grade. There's still loads more uh, rising stars than fallen angels. Yes, compared to 2022, there are some more fallen angels. In 2022, we didn't have any. Despite that, market sold off, right? In 2023, we have some fallen angels, but a lot more rising stars. But in 2024, my view is that, you know, most of the guys that are 
potential rising star candidates have all been upgraded already. So I am of the view that I think that that balance between rising star and fallen angel will probably be flat instead mm-hmm. of positive next mm-hmm. year. The, we publish this rising star fallen angel candidates literally every second month of every quarter. Every name that has gone up or gone down is part of our list. So I'm very mm-hmm. confident in saying mm, in the near term, probably less rising stars than before. Got it. And then that brings us to, I'm sure you're going to ask. Yeah, No, no. I mean, the, the, the big topic, uh, you know, what we think about defaults, the, for, yeah, defaults for next year, right? Yeah. So, so now let's talk about what the market is pricing for defaults. Okay. So in the public markets, we can track how much is stressed, mm-hmm. how much is distressed, ripe areas for you guys to step in maybe sometimes. Potentially. So if you look at the junk bond market where we got full constituent data, we can see how much is stressed bond prices between 60 to 80. Yeah. And distressed bond prices below 60. Okay. The below 60 is about 5.5, 5.6 right now. It's gone up and staying there. The stressed part is coming down though. Mm-hmm. It went up to like about 15. It's come down to 12 and I think it's now below 10. Mm-hmm. So what is that saying? It is saying that there are some weak names that are for good staying weak. Mm-hmm. They're not going to come back. But the remaining part of the market is recovering. So stress in the market is coming down. Distress is more or less staying constant. Why? Because there are like about five or six names. We actually track mm-hmm. which are potential default candidates. These six, six, seven names, they're staying as they are. They're not changing. Some of them have actually technically defaulted, but because they've had a voluntary restructuring like Casino, yeah. it is still part of the index though. Right. And that ruins this number. If of you understand course. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. So, so in my opinion, that 5.6% distress will probably translate to a 1%, 1.5% default rate at worst. So for 2024, let me be, let me explain to the listeners. I think if people who followed my podcast know the drill, we measure index defaults. And when you see index defaults and include casino, yeah. because they've written down principle, the index default rate currently stands at 0.7%. Right. And peak pandemic default rate, 1.8%. Right. So I really can't see 2024 12-month default rate more than 1% because Casino will roll off. Right. Remember, right, right, of Casino will roll off, Foodco Bondco will roll off, Frigo Glass will roll off. So all the 2023 guys will roll off. So you need new defaults. Mm-hmm. So even if all the candidates that I have mentioned, those five or six of them, all of them default in one go, you're going to get 2% default rate. So... In my opinion, 2024, 1% index default. Interesting. Interesting. What's the key risk to that number? Is it a delay uh, in you know central banks lowering rates? Or what, what, what drives default rates higher, you think? What drives those particular names to the wall? And also, to the there are some leverage loan candidates as well. Exactly. What brings right? new people in? Exactly. So, leverage loan default rate as of now is 0.33 in our database. Right. Uh, depending on how you count, it might be double that whatever, but it's still very low. Yeah. What will push them to the wall is one, 
they've all postponed refining because of very high well, cost. This is the huh? question, exactly. So, so some of them have funding requirements. Exactly. They will be pushed to the wall and which means they will probably jump ship to some private credit investors well, they, like you. They, well, they will try. They will try. They offer good risk-adjusted returns. They so don't try. forget, right? We don't do, we don't, we don't bail out every bad credit in the market. Correct, right? correct. So, so, you know, when you have, you know, so many covenant-like deals out there that have no default trigger, um, you know, a little bit related to your question earlier, you know, is the lack of volatility in private markets due to the fact that it's not tradable? But here is the lack of defaults due to the fact that there's nothing to default on until you have to pay back the people who lent you the Correct. money. Yes. Um, so, other than coupons. Other so than coupons, of So, course. for example, uh, Foodco, Bondco, coupon problem. I think Frigo Gloss was also a coupon problem. But if you cannot service your debt, yeah. you know, yep. you are in trouble. Right? Correct. If you cannot Correct. service your maturity, you know, that is something that you should be able to, to uh, well, that is that is a problem you won't really discover until that maturity comes. Until the maturity so, comes. And this in. comes where you're, you're kind of the immaturity wall. So, you know, there is a there is some dependence on credit markets being open, lower rates, yes. um, et cetera. And then, of course, to some extent, you know, private credit, if not Northwell's, you know, also much larger opportunistic credit firms potentially stepping in to, to help to solve some of those issues. The, the maturity wall in 2024 can be a problem in case you have a market shutdown like 22, 23, because normally what the leveraged borrowers do is they are very good at calling and then pushing the maturity wall 100%. by, by two, two to three years. Good. They are not able to do that yeah. because in 22 shut, 23 also shut. Relatively, of course. No, so, no. which means you got an eighty billion maturity wall in high yield, and that is very high, by the way. Yeah. So, they all are praying that you know my view plays out. Mm -hmm. The central banks cut, inflation is down, front end rates go down, and hence they will be able to refi. Otherwise, that wall will bite. Otherwise, we'll get lots of in uh, inbound emails to our to our deals at northwalkapp.com inbox. Um, Right. So uh, cover defaults. I love this topic, you know, to the extent you have more thoughts on it, uh, would, would, would love to keep uh, keep discussing. But uh, let's try and take off a few other uh, parts of the market that I, I'd love to hear your view on. Um, do you have a view on on the CLO market for 2024? Is that, you know, is that going to be open? Are we going to see new issuance? You know, what, yeah. where do you see it? So the, the problem with the CLO market in 2023 specifically was the tranches were very stubborn in keeping their spreads that they want very high. So even when the loan market rallied, the tron spreads were still too high. As a result, as a result, the ARB in a CLO deal has significantly compressed. Sure. So good old days, it used to be 450 in 2022. Now it is 200. Right. So, I mean, full ARB. Uh, if you take off the OIDs, the coupon ARB is only about 150-ish basis points. Very low. So in my opinion, the tranche demand is still too high and that will always be the case because obviously they're investors, right? right? So the underlying will rally first and these guys will catch on to it later. So next year, I'm actually thinking the, the R might squeeze even more. Mm -hmm. So you will see more CLO supply than this year, not because it is so attractive to print, but because there is so much loan pool. Right. Because there's going to be a lot more loan supply next year than this year because lower so costs. That's what we're hoping for. Lower costs. Lower right? costs. Yeah. No, no. Particularly the Eurobar Euro will be substantially lower. For sure. Uh, coming Q2 onwards. Q1 right. will still be high, 
But Q2 onwards, with uh, whatever is forecast for the ECB, you're going to have much lower costs, overall costs. Yeah. So that should lead to a lot more loan supply. That should support CLO supply. It's actually the other way around next year. It's not CLOs supporting loans, probably loans feeding CLOs. So CLO volume will be higher, uh, but the OB is not great next year. That brings me to a, a related question. Do you see private credit being securitized into CLOs? Ah, that, that question. I think um, that's another genie that's uh, starting, maybe not CLOs, but in, you know, into, into a, you know, structured, structured private credit pools. Yeah, securitized. Securitized, yes. Um, uh, I think that genie is out the bag and uh, again, will be hard to, to put back in. Yes, uh, I think that is a trend that, that we've started to see and that we should continue to see, you know, because that's where the supply is going. Has any of your deals been uh, bought by a securitization vehicle? We are, we, we are um, you know, our deals, you know, we like to hold. We don't, you hold. We don't, we don't, we don't securitize them. No. Um, you know, that is... Uh, uh, Maybe it will give you more uh, money for the next deal. If you securitize it, um, our investors are, you know, more than happy to give us, you know, a new pool of capital for, for the next range. So um, uh, they've been extremely, extremely supportive. So um, uh, uh, what do we, uh, yeah, what kind of, what does the CDS and the iTrax mark, kind of iTrax base tell us about what we're expecting for, for next year now? Now, the, obviously the, the iTrax market is, you know, is a derivative of underlying credit markets. More than the spreads in iTrax market, what I tend to look for is it tends to give us some signals that the cash market doesn't. First signal is I look at dispersions. In the iTrax market, it is very easy to track dispersion because you got equally weighted contracts, name by name, rather than a truckload of bonds and being influenced by one or two names, right? Yeah. So we track dispersion in iTrax main and iTrax crossover. What has happened is despite the rally stupendous rally happened in yep. second half of october to now despite that dispersions have gone up mm -hmm. so what does that tell you it is telling you spreads are rallying means systemic risk is going down but idiosyncratic risk is going up right so both in itrax main and crossover main means investment grade crossover high yield yeah in both dispersion has gone up that's the first thing so more idiosyncratic, more idiosyncratic individual companies experiencing issues. Do you see that more in, 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 in crossover versus main or? Oh, obviously crossover, obviously, right? obviously yeah. crossover dispersion yeah. is typically 20 to 30% more. Of course. Yeah. Uh, raw. The, 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 don't think of it as 20% of the main level. No, no, of it is raw difference yeah. because dispersion is measured as a percentage standard deviation of spreads divided by index spread. So that way you'll you'll end up with a dimensionless number, and that number measured in percentage crossover tends to be in the. I think it has gone up towards ninety now, ninety percent. Main has gone up from fifty to sixty percent. Right. So both have gone up in their own uh, way. So there is higher idiosyncratic risk. The other thing is the difference between CDS and cash, the basis, and that basis, there is. As bonds get more and more liquid, the basis is becoming more and more negative. So CDS minus cash, you know, that's how right. the credit markets define basis. Of course. Uh, has become more and more negative. And I think, I mean, or rather lower and lower. And in investment grade, I think it has gone negative in certain names. So which means 
cash is trading tighter to cds right uh i think that will probably last until the new year supply wave comes in mm-hmm. uh then you'll see a little bit of correction once again in february cash will lead cds but in march there is a cds roll then obviously cds will recover but the key point is cash seems to have recovered versus derivative interesting um and uh kind of uh, looking again you know where do you think which ratings which rating profile is is the most attractive to you um and leading into that you know uh what part of the curve uh do you think looks attractive ah in terms of portfolio positioning good question so in terms of ratings you know we regularly publish it's actually a monthly uh and in that for the last 2 3 months it has been quite clear the lower rated rating bands are trading too expensive to higher rated rating bands so single b's are more expensive double b's double b's are more expensive to triple b's triple b's are more expensive to single a's yeah and historically like very very expensive so i think a portfolio positioning for next year pure real val is telling you stick to higher ratings so if you are a pure investment grade guy overweight single a if you are a pure high yield guy overweight double b if you are a pan credit stick to triple b uh, stick to double b and above no need to go down right. because it's too much squeezed triple c's are cheap though but for a reason idiosyncratic risk is too high so I, I, that there is a reason why they are uh, they are They're, and this is this is why northwall exists right we're all about these idiosyncratic issues yeah um i've certainly uh learned a lot about uh 2024 um the outlook it's been uh, any more questions recent. i'm uh, i think i think you've covered it all thank you so much pleasure uh, uh fabian so for the benefit of our investors uh please go to the terminal bistrte again all the outlooks are on the dashboard and all fundamental data fund flow data uh, rising star fall angel data default data liquid market liquidity data all of these are proprietary and you don't have it anywhere else on the terminal this leverage loan data clo data stuff you can't get anywhere else please have a look and merry christmas and happy new year and we will see you on the other side of the new year with our next credit crunch podcast thank you all